Tonight we're starting lesson three. We've spoken about angels. We've spoken about evil. Tonight we're going to speak about the journey of the soul. The journey of our souls. Each and every one of us have a different story, a different narrative. If we all had to write a book about our lives up until this moment, we would have a book that we could write. We could write a book filled with stories, with adventures, with dramas, with good days and with bad days. My gosh, you could probably write a book once a year. Some of us maybe once a month. We've all been through elements of our lives in this world. So now what I want to do is I want to take that a step further. What about the journey of our souls? What have our souls been through? Where have our souls gone? What is this life about? What is this world about? Who are we? Rabbi David Shafat is a rabbi in Toronto. And a couple of years ago, he was lecturing in Buffalo, New York. He was invited by a group of evangelical Christians to speak. And he figured he's going to choose a topic that is pretty, as we say, parv for a rabbi. He's going to talk about charity. So he tells the following story to this group of evangelical Christians in Buffalo, New York. Says that a number of years ago, about 500 years ago, there lived in a particular town a miser. They called him the miser of the town. Whenever anyone needed anything, they never asked him because he always said no. One day, he dies. And because he was such a frugal man, they just buried him in some no-name part of the cemetery. They didn't really care very much about him. And nobody showed up at the funeral. A couple days went by, and people started complaining. What were they complaining about? They went to the butcher, and the butcher stopped giving them food. Anyone who was in need, who wanted food from the butcher, he'd always give it to them. And they went to the baker, and the baker stopped giving them bread. Anyone who was in need would always get bread free of charge from the baker. And they went to the grocery store, and the grocery store would always give. To the point where it was more and more people that were coming, they all came to the rabbi. And the rabbi, who was, his name was Atosfus Yomtev, or Yomtev Liebman, the rabbi started asking around, it didn't make any sense. All these people are coming to him, and they're asking, what's going on? Why did everyone stop giving out food? So he went to the baker, and he went to the butcher, and he went to the store, and he said, come to my office. So they all came in, and he asked them, what, what's going on? He said, I'll tell you the truth, they said. We're not people of means. We can't give the amount of charity that we were giving out to the community is well beyond our means. 
But this person who you called the miser, he came to us and he told us anyone who's in need, you give them whatever they want on one condition that you never tell them it's from me. Well, when he passed away, we stopped getting money from him. We can't give it out anymore. The place was Yomtif, this rabbi, he realized that the community had made a big mistake. They went and they prayed in his grave. They asked him for forgiveness. And Tosfos Yomtev wrote that when I die, I want to be buried next to this man, the miser. Yerushalayim continues to tell the story. This story, that story, the other story. At the end of his talk, a priest who was there in the crowd walks over to him and he says, Rabbi, I'd like to hear that story that you told about uh, the toast, the, 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 whatever that story about the miser. I want to hear it again. I said, well, it's late, I'm tired, I just moved from Toronto. Uh, come to my hotel tomorrow morning and I'll tell it to you. He figured he probably wouldn't show up. The next morning, he goes down to the lobby and the man is there waiting for him. I want to hear the story again. So he tells him the story again. The whole story about the miser and the rabbi. Tell it to me again. Again? Tell it to me again. Tell him again. I want to hear it again. But why do you want to hear it again? I just want to hear it one more time. I will not ever ask you to tell it to me again. I just want to hear it you one more time. So he tells it to me. It's now the fourth time he's telling you. Once last night and three today. This is crazy. This is insane. I, I don't know what to do with myself. What are you talking about? He said, my mother... I'm a priest. I'm a devout Christian. My mother passed away a few months ago. When she was on her deathbed, she was very heavily medicated and totally, totally out of it. And she said, I have to tell you something I never told you. But I'm Jewish. You're not a Christian. You're really a Jew. And I'm a survivor of the Holocaust. I decided after the war that I would not tell my kids that I was Jewish and I raised you as a good Catholic and hoping that you would never have to go through what I went through. But I want to tell you, I want to tell you a story about a miser and a Tosfus Yomtev. And I want to tell you that your ancestor is the miser. And he said, this is three months ago. Somebody invited me to your talk. I wasn't even planning on coming, but I figured, you know what? I'm going to come to your talk. I'll just, who knows what a rabbi is going to say. And you start talking about the story, the exact story that my mother just told me, that I thought she was senile, about a rabbi and a miser and this whole thing, and this is my, grand, my, my grandfather, this is crazy. The rabbi looks at this man. He says, You want to hear something crazy? Do you know who my grandfather is? My ancestor? My ancestor is the Tosfus Yomtev. The rabbi looks at this man and says, Five hundred years ago, an episode happened 
between your ancestor and my ancestor. And the reason why that episode happened is so that you and I, in a hotel lobby in Buffalo, New York, could be able to right the wrong that was done so many generations ago. looks at the rabbi and says, now what? What do I do now? So, well, I'm getting on a plane. I'm going back to Toronto. I don't know what to tell you. He says, here, here's a number of a rabbi. Here in Buffalo, and, I'll, and hopefully he'll be able to help me. And my chef had told me, that about a year and a half ago, he was at the, the wall in Jerusalem. And a man walks over to him with a nice beard and a kippah. He says, Rabbi Shaphat, it's so good to see you. He says, do I know you? He said, of course you know me. I'm the priest that you met in Buffalo. I think about this a lot. Not this necessarily this story, but these kinds of stories. The stories of our lives and the journeys of our lives. What do they tell? Each of us have stories. Some of us have stories of incredible life-changing moments in our life. Incredible moments. Moments that define us, that tell us who we are. And to this day, we still can't figure them out. Some of us have stories that are not so exciting. Nothing special. Actually, we're thinking, like, I don't even know. Like, you know, my journey is pretty bland. I mean, eh, I went to here and there. Nothing special. But what's the story of our lives? What is it all about? I know a man... You've heard the story from before if you've been here a while. But it just comes to mind and I have to share it. I know a man in Minnesota, his name is Maurice Rosenberg. An old friend of mine. He his wife passed away when he was young. And since then he decided that every Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur he spends in the old in the old city of Jerusalem. That's his tradition. When he first came to Israel a number of years ago, he found a little shul in the old city. And that is the place where he buys a ticket every year and he goes to this little shul in the old city. One particular year, he's standing at his layover in Heathrow, standing in line. There's a man standing next to him. His name is Maurice Cohen. They start talking. Surely enough, they look at each other's boarding passes and they're sitting next to each other. For sure. In the morning, he gets up to go to the minion. He's an Orthodox Jew. He goes to go to the minion in the back of the room, in the back of the plane. He says, Maurice, would you like to join me for the minion? No. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I even asked. Absolutely not. The moment that he told me to go right, he sent my son, my only son left, when I forgot about it. There's no God. 
Your God is crazy. You can do whatever you want. You can believe whatever you want. I don't believe he's not. He goes to pray. He comes back. A couple of minutes later after the prayer, start talking. They talk the whole way to Israel. They share a cab to Jerusalem. And that's the last he sees about. Yom Kippur, in the middle of the prayer, he's not feeling well. So he decides to go sit in the park and just meditate under a tree. It's the park. And lo and behold, he sees Maurice sitting on the bench eating a sandwich. It's not my business that you're eating a sandwich in Yom Kippur, but can I sit with you? Sit. The newfound friend, they start talking. And as you know, very soon in the shul, there's going to be the Yisgur service. You've never said Yisgur through your son. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but at least warn him. Say Yisgur for him. After a lot of hesitation, he decides to follow him to the shul. They get to the shul, and in this shul there's a tradition that each person stands in line, and they come over to the chazan, to the cantor, and they give the name of the person in the front. One after another, each person is giving their name. The chazan is doing a special prayer for each one of them. Finally, it's Maurice's time. He's falling in tears for the first time he's able to mourn his son. He turns to the chazan and he says, Lib ben Moshe. Chazan starts to recite the prayer and he turns back to him. He says, Who? Lib ben Moshe. Who? Lib ben Moshe. now lives in the old city of Jerusalem. He has children. He has a child, a cancer, grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. It's the journeys of our lives. We've all been displaced. Our souls have been displaced. Our worlds have been displaced. Majority of us are not living in the same countries as our parents or our grandparents. Probably almost every person in this room is not living in the same countries as their parents and grandparents. And if they are, they're not living in the same lifestyle or in the same way as their parents and their grandparents. And so, the journeys of our lives, the stories that we tell ourselves, the narratives that we say every single day, 
the narratives that tell us who we are and how we are to live. Who am I? We can tell ourselves positive narratives, we can tell ourselves negative narratives. Who am I? If you ask yourself the question, who am I? Well, who am I? My name is, well, that's my name. I live in, that's where you live. I do this for a profession, that's what you do for a profession. Who are you? Who are you? Who is your essence? If I had to ask you this question, think about this just for a moment. Who is your essence? Who are you? In the essence, in the core. Kabbalah is a fascinating take on who are we. But before I get there, I want you to think for a moment. In your essence, in the core of your being, in your soul, who are you? You ever ask that question? Are you worried to even go there? Too much of a good thing? Too much of a bad thing? Where are your thoughts? Penny for your thoughts. They're not worth anything anyway. Not thoughts. Penny for your thoughts. What do you think? Who are you? But I just want to know what you're thinking. Everyone's thinking something else right now. No one's focused. We're having a hard time getting everyone focused there. So, what do you think? Human beings with a soul. Human beings with a soul. Okay. Yeah. Energy. Energy. Okay. You cannot use words. Yeah? A true essence is a soul within a human body. Soul within a human body. True essence. place to the other, totally fluid. Okay, that works. So in order for us to understand 
to believe and to know God, we need to ask, who am I? As the narrative. Not, am I God? I'm not God. But who am I? And how do I know who I am, in essence? Do you want to know who you are? Do you want to explore an element of yourself that perhaps you've never explored before? I'm going to tell you something tonight that many people who are students of Kabbalah would be very against in the style and the form that I'm speaking to you. And I'll tell you why. Because without having the context to which to be able to hold this information, it's going to be very, very hard for you to be able to integrate it into your life. And the entire purpose of everything that we're studying here is to be able to integrate it into your life, to, to make us all better people. So I'm going to tell you something, but before you jump, because you're going to have a, an, an immediate reaction in, in your heart, don't jump to it. I want you to think about it. You are, you are your lusts. Not your desires, your lusts. What you lust after, that's who you are. The term in Kabbalistic words is a taiva. You are your taiva. So how do you differentiate desire and lust? How do you differentiate lust? is something that you desire to the point where you can't explain it. Can you explain the things that you lust after? You lust after them. To the point where they become so much part of you. Do you know what people do for lust? Do you know how far and to what lengths people will go for lust? We are what we lust after. As we become better people, as we become more refined people, our lusts change. And if you've become a more refined person, or you think you've become a more refined person, and your lust hasn't changed, and you have not become a more refined person, I'm going to hold that question. It's a good question. I'm going to hold it for a second before to truly understand what is a lust or a taiva. So, somebody has a particular, let's say, very basic. I lust after ice cream. There's some people who are chocolate. Chocolate's a good one. Some people lust chocolate. Can you explain? Can you explain the chocolate? I don't understand the whole chocolate thing. I don't like chocolate. But there are people who really, really like chocolate. It's an amazing, I, it's such a, a great taiva. It's a, it's, a, it's a lustful thing, chocolate. I want chocolate. I need chocolate. I, I desire chocolate to the point where chocolate, 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 all I can see all day is chocolate. 
The problem with lusting after chocolate is what do they say? What's the term? A moment in the lips, a lifetime on the hips, right? Is that, is that what it is? The problem is, is that it's a momentary desire. So you'll get it. You'll, it won't be very hard. Whatever it costs you, $3.50, and you have your, your, your lust in the right time and the right place, you take it. Hopefully it's kosher. If not kosher, it's not my business. And what happens? You have that fix for how long? Five seconds. Five seconds. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe less. However long it takes you to eat it. The moment you don't eat anymore, it's not. It's it. It's a momentary desire. Now you could be thinking about it. You could be marinating on it. You could be focusing on it. You could be so much into it for for weeks before you get it. It's the problem with a lot of diets, right? A lot of diets are focused on things that we can't have. So we just lust after those things more and more and more. And the moment we say off the diet, well, that's what we're going to be doing. There we go binging. So if you have a momentary lust, what ends up happening is you get that satisfied for a moment. But what about if you had an eternal lust? What's the difference between, let's say, chocolate lusting, or what's an eternal lust? Shiach. Or, or lusting after God, or lusting after a certain sense of spiritual, spiritual refinement, or lusting after big things, like lusting after marriage, lusting after children. What if we could change our lusts and then we're not selfish creatures wanting selfish momentary desires, but we are actually deeper, more prosperous creatures that want something that is eternal, that want something that's incredible, that want something that's life-changing. If you want to know, people say, oh, well, I've changed my whole life. I've made such a huge change in my life. I used to be this way, and now I'm this way. Wonderful. It's a very, very nice thing. I'm very proud of you. But you want to know what the litmus test is? Have you changed your lusts and the way you lust? Did I lose you? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because our world is so sexually oriented today, I, I don't want to go into all the details of this particular idea. But you can take it any way you want. You can kind of define it the way that you want to define it. And the way that that works for you in your life. But it's a really good way for you to have a particular test to see what kind of self-refinement you really have. Because there's people who can do things by rote, and there's people who can make really, really good decisions for a certain amount of time. But if you want to change the very essence of who you are, if you want to change the very fabric of your being, of your heart, 
that you have to change what's totally inside your heart to the point that you don't understand why you have that particular thing. And that is going to be your lusts, your titles. So let's go back to the journeys of our souls. Who am I? Now let's ask the next question. Why did God create the world? Why do you think God created the world? He was bored. God was bored. Otherwise known as a bored soul. Why did God create the world? To make it a dwelling place. To make a dwelling place for right, We've spoken about this. Why did God create the world? Why did God create the world? For the Torah. Huh? For the Torah? To give us the Torah. Why did God create the world? We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. So let's, let's go through four. I was bored. I don't know. Dwelling place? Well, if God created, created the world, God created the dwelling place also. Like, I don't know if that's a strong enough reason. The Torah? So just to be able to, God could have given the Torah anywhere. Do you know why God created the world? Because God lusted this world. we would never be able to understand that. By the way, the angels can't figure that one out. The angels are still trying to figure it out, why this world was created. Because they don't have lust. You see how powerful lust is? Lust isn't the very fabric of the reason that this entire world was created. This entire world was created because God lusts. This world, and you and me, and everything in it, for what purpose? Then we go to Sharon to make a dwelling place for him. But why? But how? But who? But where? Oh my gosh, it's opening up so many questions for me. I mean, we can go through layers and layers and layers and layers of this. But it's a lust. Remember that. We know that lusts, and we cannot define them. Lusts are so powerful. There's so much part of who we are that we can't define them. That is the very fabric of nature of this world. Now that we understand that, you got that? Now that we understand that, I'm going to take you one step further. If that's the reason why God created the world, and that is so powerful, well, think about our world today. Think about the world that we live in today. 
There are millions of dollars that are being spent every single day to get you to lust things. This is not a phone. You thought this was a phone? This is not a phone. The guy who marketed this phone wanted you to lust it. He was not satisfied with it being just a phone. He wanted people to stand in line for hours to be the first ones to have this phone and to lust it and to show it off. Today, it's no more about what we have. It's about what we lust. You see, if we start thinking with the rational mind, well, we're not going to want anything anymore. Because rationally, I, I don't want that cookie there. Rationally. Why would I want it? I don't want the chocolate rationally. But it's a lust. I don't even want the iPhone. I'm very happy with that flip phone. My rational mind is a whole different level. But the world and the marketing geniuses of this world do not want you to act with your rational mind. So over the past 20 years, and I would say even more recent, the past 10 years, and as we are so techno technologically um, connected, so they have more power over us. The reason they have power is the advertisers have so much power over us. A Time Magazine report said recently that at the average day, the average person sees 1,500 advertising messages. A day, a day. We are so overstimulated with advertising messages. So what happened to our world? Our world is now back to the way it was supposed to be, but the exact opposite of what it's supposed to be. Our world is now in a world that's lusting. So what is our job? Our job is just to the switch from lusting after momentary desires to lusting after eternal desires. 100 years ago, if I were to be giving this class 100 years ago, nobody would what are you talking about? I lust. Who has time to lust? Who would even have time for the class? They're running from this thing to that thing. You run for fun? Who runs for fun? You run for fun in a thing that doesn't actually move? You're doing what? Who would imagine this 100 years ago? But today, we have all the time that we need to come to this class and to binge watch Netflix. We have all the time that we need for anything that we want, yet we're so much less satisfied than they were 100 years ago. Because we are here, we're at the cusp. We finally figured it out, the sexual revolution, the lustful revolution. We just have to flip it. We have to flip it on its head and see what it really is. It's not a sexual revolution. It's not a lustful re re revolution. It's a revolution for the truth, for what is going to be the ticking point of this world, of this society. That's what we're really lusting after. Changing momentary lusts for eternal 
more impactful us. What's the purpose of your life? Why are you here in this world? To have a relationship with God. I hear to have a relationship with God. So let's go. Who are you? Let's go back. Who are you? Who are you? Through us. Why did God create the world? God lusted. So what's the purpose? You are your lust. And God created the world because he lusted. And what is your purpose in this world? Huh? To be aware of our loss so that we can choose good. You follow that process? To be aware of our lust so that we can choose eternal lust over momentary lust. So we can make conscious choices instead of passive choices. So that every single day can be filled with being here instead of numbing ourselves and being somewhere else. That would take a lot of therapy, but you know what I mean. So, Sadiqim so have eternal lust for them. They don't have this challenge. But they also don't have, because they don't have this challenge, they can't grow. They can't, they can't, go, they, they, they can't go anywhere. Look at, what, look at what we can do with our lust. Imagine all of that passion, all of that motivation, if we just use it for the right reason. It's totally transformative. It's totally life-changing. Taking all that lust, all that passion and using it for the right reason. It's, trans it's transformative. It could take us to a whole different plane. It could take us in a whole different place. What do you think? Should I just stop and let it sink in? Already too much information? My type, exactly. This lust is so much connotation that it's difficult to. I'm using. I have to use the English term, but if you wanted to use the Hebrew term, it would be the word taiva, which is so much more powerful than the word lust. Now, where do I go to find that? Where do I go to find the lust? Where do I go to find that lust? What's the self-assessment for lust? 
where you spend your free time. It's a good one. What you're thinking about. What you think about. What? What you feel. You, you are where your thoughts are. You are where your feelings are. You think you're here, but if you're thinking of something else, that's where you are. You think that you're feeling this. The greatest thing that we can do in our life is to train ourselves to be here in the moment right now. Multitasking was a bad idea. I'm not saying that it's not possible. We're very proud of people who can do it, but it's not a good idea. It's not going to make anyone more efficient. It's not a. It's not going to make us any more efficient. Multitasking. What else? What are other ways of having a self-assessment? Actions. Hmm. Actions. What kind of actions? Everything we do every single day. What else? way we speak. Remember the garments of our soul? Our thoughts, speech, and our action. Yeah? Put ourselves in a place other than where we are so that we can materialize Okay. so often think that if I only was this, if I only could be something else, if I only would have done this, if I only should have or could have done this, then look at what I would be. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov tells an amazing parable, a story of a stone cutter. Stone cutter all day in the hot sun. He's working trying to cut the stones of the mountain. The mountain is so tough and rough. He turns to the mountain and he says, he turns up to the heavens and says, oh heavens, oh heavens, if only I could be the mountain. Poof, there he was. He became the mountain. Whole day sitting there all up. Joy. Beating down the sun, beating down his eyes. Oh, the sun, the sun, it's so hot. It's too much. If only. If only I could be the sun. And poof, there he is. He becomes the sun. All day, he's loving every moment of it. He's beating down on the world and all the heat, everything is wonderful. All of a sudden, one day, as he's shining down his rays on the world, a cloud comes in front of him and blocks his rays. 
He says, how dare this cloud block the rays? If only I could be the cloud. And there he is, poof. He's the cloud blocking the rays. And then comes along the wind and blows him away. He says, what can be more powerful than I, the cloud? If only I could be the wind and poof, there he is, he becomes the wind. He blows this and blows that and blows here and blows there until he comes to the mountain. And he blows and blows and blows and he cannot blow past the mountain. He tries as he may, he cannot blow past the mountain. He says, what can be stopping my way if only I were the mountain? And poof, he's the mountain. He's wonderful. Everything's great, but suddenly he hits a little chip in his ear. There's a little stone cutter that's chipping away at the edge of the mountain. He says, who's chipping away at my ear? If only I could be the stone cutter. And the stone cutter was back to himself. <clears throat> the Nachman of Resto says that this is the exact metaphor for who we are in our lives, the journey of our lives. We're constantly looking for the next thing. And we think that's great. We think that's a goal. We think that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be, what if I was this? And what if I was that? And what if I could have been this? And what if I should have been that? And what if only I could be a better person of this? And what if I could be a better person of that? If only, if only, if only. We spend our whole entire times doing what we inherited from our parents so well. More than anything else in the world, we inherited this. Guilt. They made sure that we have lots and lots of doses of guilt. They didn't give us Hanukkah guilt, they gave us Hanukkah guilt. But that's not the conscious way that we act. That's not what we're supposed to do. What we're actually supposed to do is we're supposed to look at it a different method. It's not if I could have, but where am I today? Who am I today? What is my purpose in this world, and how am I going to get to where I want to be tomorrow? So we had a couple of questions that came out of last week's class that I want to address at this moment. One was about evil versus good. How do I know? if what I'm doing comes from evil or if what I'm doing comes from good? How do I know where, where I'm supposed to be? Maybe I am doing the right thing, I just don't know it. Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing, but I don't know it. How do I know what's evil? What's evil? Evil is the opposite of good. Evil is a creation that was created in order to be the opposing element of good. Good is a creation of its own, created by God, and evil was created just as the balance of good, so we have complete free choice. So, what is free choice? Free choice is the choice that I have at every moment to choose now. Listen to this one. If I have a choice every moment to choose, then the best thing I can be doing, the best thing I can be doing is being conscious. Because if I'm not conscious, then I'm passive. 
If I'm making passive choices, well, that's not my purpose in this world. My purpose in this world is to make conscious choices. story is the Maram of Ruttenberg, he was put into prison. The Duke said, you have one day a year you can get out. What day will it be? And he said, today. Because today is the most important day of my life. What I can accomplish today is more powerful than any other day. That is called living consciously. That's called living consciously. What can I do today? It's the journey of my soul. All the journeys are wonderful. They're great. They make up great stories or sometimes not so great stories. But that's not the point. The point is, what am I doing today? What is my journey today? Well, how do I know what I'm going to do tomorrow if I don't make an accounting of what I'm doing today. So there's a Jewish process to this. The process is called Cheshbon HaNefesh. This is how it goes. Every single night, before you go to sleep, start like this. I'm not going to give you something too complicated. The actual thing is you go through is you pick one thing that you're going to do tomorrow. It doesn't, I'm not talking about going and paying the bills. I'm talking about something that you're going to do that's about your purpose. One thing you're going to do tomorrow. You write it down before you go to sleep. And then at night, you look back at what you wrote down. Say, did I do it? Yes or no? 
you make an accounting of what you did that day, and then you make another resolution to do something else tomorrow. If you're trying to make a change in your life, don't make a change forever. That's never going to work. Don't make a change for a year that's not going to work either, or a month that's too long. Make a change for a day. And every single day, every single night before you go to sleep, make that resolution again. Over and over and over. The great things you do in your life are going to be made up of the tiny little conscious decisions that you make every single day. Together, they will add up as the narrative or the journey of your life. But don't try to make the big choices first. Eventually, there's a whole process to this, how it goes. But the first step one, once you feel comfortable with step one, you can come back to me and I'll give you step two. Step one is you want to make a change in your life, re-change every single day. So if it's whatever it is, if it's a self-refinement change, if it's a spiritual change, if it's a religious change, it doesn't matter what it is. Any change that you want to have, it's a positive change. You must be conscious of it and you must re remake that change every single day. And you do it before you go to sleep. You put it into motion before you go to sleep so that when the next day you're ready, right when you wake up, you know what your, your, your purpose is, you know what your job is, this is what you're doing, this is what you're focusing on. And then you look back the following night, did I do what I promised I would do the night before? If yes, if no, why didn't I, etc. Back and forth, back and forth. And then you re-resolve for the next day. The greatest things in our lives are made up of the smallest little details. And we need to re-inspire re ourselves every single day. How do, I, how do I find my purpose? How do I find the big picture? It's very nice, all these little things that I'm here for, and I'll try to do those every single day, I'll make that change, wonderful. But how do I find the big picture of what I'm doing here? Now let's go back to the past two weeks, and let's take a look and try to piece together everything that we've learned till now. So, 
Let's first start with angels. What do we learn about angels? What's the, the essence of angels? That every single act that we do has a representative angel. Let's learn about evil. What was the main thing about evil? That? What? That it doesn't want to exist. Evil does not want to exist. Every single act that we do makes a representative angel, whether good or bad. The opposite of good is bad. The bad doesn't want to exist. It only exists to give us free choice. What is free choice? Free choice is the ability that we have as the end user to choose between good and evil. But evil doesn't exist. But yet, the end user can't see that. The end user can just see the choice between good and evil. But evil doesn't exist. But in this video game of my life, the authors of the game created something that looks so real, but it's really smoke and mirrors. Well, what else is smoke and mirrors? What else is not true? What else is false? What else is not real in my life? If evil that seems so real is not real, what else is not real? You know the problem? The problem is the subconscious can't tell the difference between what it sees in real life and what it sees on TV. The subconscious doesn't have any way of seeing the difference between the two. So what's happened to us as people who have been overstimulated in our society is we can't tell the difference between what's real and what's fake. So what is the purpose and the first step and the purpose of our world is to start trying to figure out what's real and what's not real. So let's start. What's real and what's not real? What's real? Torah. Torah. What's real? What's real? I don't know. What's real? Is my finger real? Currency. Currency. Okay. Huh? Truth. Truth. Okay, let's, let, let's start the opposite way. What's fake? Politics. Politics. News. News. What's fake? Materialism. Materialism. Huh? Oh, currency is fake too. Yeah. It's real and it's fake. Okay. Yes. Okay. It fluctuates, right? Yeah, it fluctuates. Huh? Doubt. It's fake. What if you spent a day just identifying every single thing that happens to you in your life? Whether it's fake or it's real. I think that what you would find is that a lot of the things that are happening to you every single day are fake. They're not real. They don't really exist. We're constantly living lives that don't really exist. We spend the majority of our life doing things that don't really exist. We spend the majority of our lives with kaivas, with lusts that don't 
really exist. Because they're momentary. Because what do they say again? A moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. They're momentary. What if we started become, becoming aware of those momentary lusts and how they affect us? What if we started becoming aware of those momentary interactions and what they do to us? What if we started becoming aware of all of the different things that happen to us every single day and how we reacted to them? Who we reacted to? How many people become the authors of our lives? How many interactions and situations become the authors of our lives? How much faith and trust we put into things, people, and ideas that don't belong having faith and trust in. We put up barriers and blockages where we're supposed to be open. And we are open where we're supposed to put up barriers and blockages. The people who we're supposed to love the most are the ones that bother us the most sometimes. And the people who we are not necessarily have to love the most are the ones that we usually are the nicest to. How, why is that? Why is it that we're so mean sometimes to the people that we're supposed to be the nicest and most pleasant to, while the people we don't have to be are the ones who get our kindness? What's an illusion? In our mind. What? It's hard because we're supposed to do it. Because right, we're all oppositional. Right. We're in essence oppositional. So we're supposed to do that, so we shouldn't do it. So. The world is backwards. Huh? The whole world is exactly backwards. If you're going to look at our world and our society today, you're going to see that it's ripe for real, authentic change. We live in the best time possible because everything is exactly backwards. All you have to do is flip it around, everything. And it's we're perfect, you've got it. You've got it all made. Just literally flip it around. The entire world is a mirror of what it's supposed to be. Never in history have we been in, this, in, a, in a situation, in a society that's literally so ripe for incredible, incredible change. It's all just needs to be flipped. So. Let's, let's start. Let's start with this one. There's me. Me, I'm a stick figure. Because that's the best I can do, I'm sorry. That is my heart skills. Huh? I'm, that, that's not me. That's you. Okay? So now, I'm made up of what? I'm made up of, in my brain, I'm talking about, see that's the brain. How am I doing so far? <laughs> okay. That's not a toupee. That's a brain. I have my godly soul. Then I have a heart. Right? The left ventricle of my heart. The left ventricle of my heart. I have my animal soul. 
Then I have my soul garments. My soul garments are my thoughts. <laughs> my speech. And my action. This is how my soul is able to, to interact with the world. What else do I have? I have, I have emotions. So I have, on this side over here, I have loving kindness. <coughs> on this side over here, I have, which what? I have my, I have rejection, right? In the middle, I have integration. Let's go back to my brain, right? What do I have? I have conception over here. I have conceptualization over here. And I have, I have the mix of those two. I have what's called dot, which is? No. I have dot, which is? Huh? The actualization. Thank you. See? How are we doing so far? Uh, am I not one big confused spiritual soul right here? There's a lot going on, right? There's a lot going on. And this is the spiritual side of me. I'm not even talking about the other elements. Right? I've got a good inclination. I've got an evil inclination. I'm going this way. I'm going that way. I'm trying to figure it all out. This is really complex. This is really complicated. How do I put it all together? How do I try to find some kind of equilibrium in my life? Who am I? Who am I? How do I figure it all out? Who am I? Because all of this is wonderful and beautiful, and we're going to go on next week to talk about our souls and the spiritual side of us and what our higher power is. And then we're going to go on the week after and talk about the afterlife, what happens after this world. And then we're going to talk about what happens when our soul comes back into this world, reincarnation. But today, we can't talk about any of that stuff until we figure out today who we are and what's it all about. And what is it? Who are we and what is it all about? What is the journey of my life? Why am I here? According to Kabbalah, I chose me, my soul, chose to be here in this world, to be born to the parents that I was born to, to live in the city that I am living in, in the time period that I'm living in, because my soul saw what it could accomplish in this world. My soul, before I was born, was able to see 
that it was able to accomplish its purpose in this world through these parents at this time, in this community, in this place, exactly where I am now. Now, I'm questioning, what the heck am I doing here? Why am I doing this? What's going on? This place is great. Look at this. I'm so confused. I didn't have anything to do. I was turmoil. I don't know how to do it. And she's like, great. And wonderful. Wonderful. Wait. My soul, the essence of who I am, before I came into this world, knew this is the best place for me right now. And I'm questioning all the tumult and turmoil. I'm questioning why I'm supposed to be here, what I'm supposed to be doing here. But this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. So, let's get back on track. Let's get back off the derailment and get re-railed and figure out what we're supposed to be doing. So, I'll ask it again. Who am I? Huh? My lusts. What am I doing here? What's the purpose of me being here? To choose good, to accomplish the mission. To accomplish a specific purpose. What's that purpose? That purpose needs to be accomplished through my unique talents through my unique abilities, that nobody else can do it. No one else has lived before me, no one else that will live after me, and no one else that's living during my lifetimes has the same unique purpose that I have. Every single person that comes into this world is completely unique. Completely. And has a unique purpose. So how do I find that purpose? Hold on a second, wait. Does that mean 
that my purpose is supposed to be hard? That's not fair. What is this? God's comedy show? Let's put all these people in the world. Let's give them the hardest thing that we could think of. And let's let them ride out into the yonder. What if you're really good at something? That's an example of what your purpose is. Because you're going to need what you're really good at to help you accomplish those things that you're really not good at. Your talents are going to help you accomplish your mission. And your mission is going to be something that's very difficult. so close to you, never let it go. What is the most important thing that you need to accomplish all of this, the modality that you need? Focus. I hear focus. What else? Well, what do you need? One. Hmm? Indeed. Will power. Will power. You must you must protect your willpower. You may call it self-esteem. It's not necessarily self-esteem. It is your drive. It is your motivation. The moment you stop being motivated towards something, you are in the process of dying. Because every little thing, every living thing must grow. Every living thing must grow. If you're not growing, you're dying. You need to protect your willpower. You have to protect your motivation. You have to teach your children to hone their motivation. Let them, don't say, which the education system is so good at saying, no, you've got to be this way. No, be yourself. Because only you can accomplish your unique mission in this world. You have to be the best version of yourself that you can be. That's the way we have to educate our children. To help them and encourage them to be the best version of themselves that they can be. We have to educate ourselves to be the best versions of ourselves by protecting our willpower. So, what happens if I'm depressed? What happens if I've lost my desire to continue? I just can't do it anymore. It's too hard. I'm going after something, and I just feel just too much. It's too much. What do I do now? I must overpower it. I'm not saying it's easy. To find something new, whether it be small, start with one step at a time. Find something new to be excited about. It's very hard. No one said any of this is going to be easy. But you have, if, you, if you were excited about something else, and now you either accomplish that, or you, for some reason, somebody came and watched something fascinating. In the beginning of computers, 
there was a huge need for computer programmers in the 80s. People were going, dropping out of university, learning computers, and getting really, really high-powered jobs, really well-paying jobs in computer programming. It came like the thing. There was no university education for it. People were just going, learning on the fly. People were teaching other people how to use computers. And they were in such high demand, people were paying whatever money they could to get people to program computers. There were two types of people. There were the people who were very good at programming that computer. And then there were the people who grew and evolved and grew and continued growing with the various computers as more and more technology. The people who were very good at programming the 1987 computer, they became obsolete together with their computers. They both became doorstoppers. But the people who constantly grew and saw technology evolving, they saw that this is a new horizon, that every single day, I'm not just going to be able to program the 1987 computer, but in 2018, most computers are going to be able to program themselves. And I'm going to be able to be part of that new process of internet technology and development. Those people are even in greater demand today than they were in 1987. What's the difference between the two? Stagnation versus growth. Versus growth. That's what happens. See, automatically we become complacent. It's okay. I figured it out. I know it. Life is wonderful. When you stagnate, you go down. But how do you continue? Is that what it is? We get tired. We get tired. All I want to do is just relax. Just give me something to relax. I want to go binge watch TV. That's all I want. Binge watching Netflix is escaping reality. We don't want to train ourselves to escape reality ever. We want to try to train ourselves to be the best in reality, the best present in the present state that we can. That's what we want to, want to train ourselves to do. How do we do that? By finding that little spark inside of our soul that motivates us, that drives us. Whatever it is, honing it and protecting that. We gotta protect the little diamond in our heart. And then everything else is gonna flow and flourish from that. If you feel overwhelmed by life, if you feel like life has gotten to the best of you, then you have to try to ask yourself, what is my motivation? What is it? If you don't know what it is, just do something, something that inspires you. Lust after something, and I'm not talking about chocolate. Lust after something spiritual, after something more refined. Use your taiva, use your lust power to lust after something that is greater than yourself. And slowly, slowly you're gonna change and you're gonna see how one thing will lead to the next. You end up in a particular situation, in a particular time, in a particular place, and all of a sudden, it starts working. And slowly, you start building it up. And here's the key. 
most importantly, you can't do it yourself. You cannot trust yourself to do it alone. You need a mentor. You need someone outside of you who cares about you, who can guide you and help you. What is the rule? There's two rules of a mentor. Number one, you have to be able to listen to everything they say, even if you don't like their advice. Because if you choose them as a mentor, then God gives them the right words to speak to you. Through them, you learn how to grow and become better. And number two is even more important than that. They must have a mentor. You cannot choose a mentor who doesn't have a mentor. Because mentoring is the chain of life. You cannot give unless you receive. That's the circle. The circle of giving and receiving. Somebody who doesn't know how to properly receive is not somebody who properly give. Somebody who doesn't know how to properly give is not somebody who can properly receive. who's guiding you needs to be someone who's guided as well. Yes. And you have to be able to trust them. You're going to ask your mentor if they have some. Yes. That's the only question you ask them. Do you have a mentor? Me? No. I'm saying you have to have someone who's giving you guidance today. I have a mentor. He's asking for Rebbe. Yeah, the Rebbe, Rebbe. I, the Rebbe is, is amazing advice, and I study the Rebbe's teachings. But the Rebbe is not around today to be able to give practical advice. To, I'm sorry. To, you, have a real mentor, you need to have a real mentor who's alive who you can ask real questions to. <laughs> I mean, it's very nice. I go to the Ohel and I pray there and continue to pray, and I'm not at all. The littling that is a very powerful, very, very beautiful experience, but you need to be able to ask questions and receive answers and listen to them. If after you finish speaking to your mentor, you feel uplifted, if you feel drained, same thing with a therapist, if you feel drained and like I can't move on, then you don't have a good therapist or a good mentor. To feel uplifted and empowered and excited to be able to 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 move on, do the next thing. I'm going to add something else that I think is very important, which is not in the Torah's perspective, but in our generation, I think it's more important. And I I've learned this myself the hard way with my mentors. Make sure, if you have a mentor, a real mentor, pay them. And I'll tell you why. Because 
it's part of the give and take relationship. It needs to be. Both of you need to have skin in the game. And it's a different relationship. It can't just be, oh, somebody, good friend, who you ask for advice to. That's it's nice, it's nice, but it's like being lifted, it's like propped up by the boys' club or by the girls' club. Yeah, you go, you go, girl, that's wonderful. But that's not how, what it is. How do you know what to take and what to steal? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But I, I think that it's important that there's a, there's a give and take in life. I've made that mistake a number of times myself when choosing my choice. I went to an amazing mentor who would not take anything from me, and I realized that it was not, it was a great, it was a great, great, but it was, it was too, it wasn't, it wasn't practical. Doesn't necessarily have to be monetary? Or doesn't have to necessarily be monetary, no. It's that? It's a, it needs to be a give, there needs to be a give and take. They, you must be giving them something, not just taking from them. Huh? Whatever it is. Yes, that's a very good point. It doesn't have to necessarily be monetary. It just needs to be a give and take relationship on both sides. No, I said pay them, but someone else specified that you don't have to necessarily pay them. You can. There needs to be. So you can give. I don't know what. I don't know what. Every mentor is different. Every single situation is different. But if there's a way that if you're not able to pay a mentor, there's still ways in life that you can give to people without having to pay them. What else? What are your thoughts? I just went through the whole gamut of self-refinement in Kabbalah in one hour. So what are your thoughts? level is, give back. Give to someone else. You'll find through giving. You find the most through teaching and through giving. I can tell you that from experience. If you are not sure what it is and what to do next, figure out a way to give back. Through your purpose. Acknowledge, I am stuck now. 
but don't get stuck in the stuck. It's very easy to, people like to drown in their own misery. It's very comfortable. There was a, a very famous chassid who used to have some of the most amazing stories, and I've told many of his stories here. I'm going to tell one story now. What next? You're welcome. right? Every single night, deciding one thing you can do tomorrow, and then reviewing that thing the following night and seeing if you did it, and then making a new resolution. Re-resolving every single night. What else? Huh? Mentor. Mentor. What else? Something that's difficult. Something that's difficult. Try to find something, finding your purpose by finding something that's difficult and also using your talents for positive. What else? Find something that excites you. Turning your momentary lust into eternal lust. Anything else that you can think of that comes out of tonight's class? Uh, separating the, the, the truth from the false. Separating truth from false. So here, these are some examples. So now let's go around. Let's do a little reflection. What do you take? You want to start? Alex? I'm silent today. Huh? I have nothing to say. Nothing to say. Share anything to say? Any reflection on tonight? I could say about my day. No, reflection on, to, on the class. But, but, okay, but this, you know, like, if I were to think about it and apply to what you said, I spent the whole day which, with no result looking for something that I lost. All in from your last class when you said, uh, if you're, you know, dead, get up, right? Isn't that what you always said? Like, get up, get up. I've done so much, I'm losing things, and I feel like I'm losing my mind. I spent the whole day, and I can't find it. 
So now you have to get. Now you have to do the opposite. What do you mean, forget about it? Forget about it. It's a credit card wrap-up. <laughs> so cancel it. That's this. Any thoughts? So my thoughts are live in the moment, be conscious of the decisions, um, be aware of what's real and what's not real. Thoughts? Okay. We don't have to. Anything comes to mind? Gets the most of Next week, same time, same channel. To be continued. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com Scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you 
and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode. 